Well, you may have noticed we're well into the political season, maybe even neck deep, maybe over our heads <laughs> in some regards. And in every political season, everybody is talking, every candidate's talking about change, the changes that need to be made in our country, the, the betterment of people's lives, uh, what we need to change in our government to make our country better, how we're going to go about making those changes, what they're going to keep, what they're going to get rid of, what they're going to go back to, what they are looking forward to. And one candidate goes so far to say, I am going to make America great again. And people cheer for him and vote for him. Another candidate counters, America never stopped being great. I'm going to make America whole. And people clap and cheer and vote accordingly. So what are the chances that any of these candidates or any candidate really can deliver on these kinds of promises? Don't have to take a poll, don't have to do any research, don't have to look at the person's background, don't have to look at their track record to give an answer. What are the chances that any candidate can make America great again or keep America great or make America whole or heal our country? What are the chances? Zero. Absolutely nothing. Nana. Can't happen. And here is why. It wasn't politicians or elected officials or the government that made America great to begin with. There's not a politician in the world, there's not a government in the world that can make any nation, any country great. They don't have that ability, they're not invested with that capability, and they are not the ones who made America great to begin with. This last week I listened to a, a sermon by Pastor Andy, Andy Stanley and he really got my thinking going in these matters and I was already thinking about these things and so I've taken some of what he said and expanded on it greatly this morning and added some of my own thoughts related to the history of our country. And in four words, Andy Stanley said this, strong church, strong nation. Strong church, strong nation. And that reminded me of the study I've done of our history and of our Puritan forefathers, that we recognize a basic biblical truth that they instilled into our nation when it came to the church and the state. And I thought it was interesting, that, that song that uh, Arlena taught us this morning, if we haven't heard that song, it talked a lot about the state in there. It's what the pilgrims called the ordering of society the ordering of society, and it all begins with the local church. The Puritans, when they came to these shores, recognized that godly communities were made up of godly churches. Otherwise, the community is not godly at all. In general, it was Christianity that made America great to begin with, and in specific, it was the church of Jesus Christ that made America great. How did the Church of Jesus Christ make America great? Let me just give you a couple of things that uh, we can think about in this manner. We hear a lot today about dignity and individuals and human rights. Everybody, it seems, is fighting for their rights. On college campuses, they're fighting for dignity. Black lives matter. Then you get all lives matter. Then you get blue lives matter. And Andy Stanley reminded us that, quote, it is the church which provides the strongest argument for the dignity of individuals and human rights, unquote. 
It is the church that provides the strongest argument for the dignity of individuals and human rights. And I got to thinking about that. How is that? Every individual matters because why? We are creations of the living God. We are made in the image of God. We are creations of God before we are creations of America. We are creations of God before we are Canadians or Cubans or whatever it is. Whatever our race, whatever our gender, whatever our nationality, each one of us is a special creation of God. Every person on this earth is made in the image of God. Therefore, every person has worth, has intrinsic value, because we bear the imprint of God. God who made you, and according to Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in whom you live and breathe and have your being. So how did our American forebears express this biblical truth? Let me give you one example. I told some of the guys before the sermon today, I'm going to quote my tie today. Because our forefathers put it this way. These words will sound familiar to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did that come from? It came from Christianity. It came from the church that made up the godly communities. Thomas Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration of Independence, which is printed on my tie this morning in his handwriting, one of my favorite things, his first draft said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Sacred, holy, sacred truth comes from God's word. It's undeniable. And during the revisions of the first draft of the Declaration that were done by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin suggested to Jefferson that the words sacred and undeniable be changed to self-evident. And if you look at the bottom of my tie, you can see sacred and undeniable crossed out and, un, and, and uh, whatever, <laughs> self-evident put right, right there. Now, if Franklin probably didn't fully realize this, but it is self-evident to all because the God in whose image we are made put it within each one of us. So self-evident that it's undeniable. So I ask myself, what's the big deal? And the big deal is this. You do not want to live in societies where they do not believe that you have value because you are created by God, where they do not believe that you have intrinsic value because you are made in the image of God. And as I see it, you don't want to live in a society where you have no unalienable rights as given by God, because whatever rights you may or may not have, therefore, are solely dictated by the state. And it's been proven historically, when the state dictates those, it's always done in, in tyranny. Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, Communist North Korea, the killing fields of Cambodia, ISIS, the Islamic State, what value does a woman have in an Islamic state when she is a sex slave? The state, of course, through their religion, determines the value of people. When the state is the one which determines human value and worth, people have no human value and worth. And what we forget is that human rights and inherent worth and dignity is a Christian value. 
we think of it as an American value. It's only an American value because it came from our Christian values. It's a Christian value that was instilled in America by the church of Jesus Christ. It's a Christian value that's influenced this nation. It's a Christian value that has influenced the conscience of our nation. It's only a part of the American psyche because it came directly from godly churches and the Bible. People assume that rights and dignity and worth are what? Basic human values. You hear that all the time. But these values were originally set loose in the world by Christianity. Christianity came upon the scene when people could be bought and sold. People could be bought, they could be sold. In fact, when Jesus came into this world, over half the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. More than half. And in all society at that time, all the ancient societies, you would have no intrinsic value. You would have nothing of worth in you. And you were given labels. You were given assigned values, depending on where you were born and who you were born to. Your class level was assigned. Your nobility or lack of was assigned. There weren't very many who were, were noble. Your station in life was assigned. There was no ladder to climb, and society determined your worth. Your master, if he wanted to kill you like a dog, he could because you were property, according to the state. And Christianity came on the scene for the first time in all human history. Every person was given and recognized equal value and dignity as creations of God, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, what? You are all one in Christ Jesus. Philip Yancey, in his neat little book called Unleashing Grace, he wrote a book several years ago, What's So Amazing About Grace, or not Unleashing, but Vanishing Grace. First book was What's So Amazing About Grace, and the latest one was uh, Vanishing Grace, because he's recognizing that grace is vanishing not only in our society, but in our church. But he makes a quote that, uh, or says something that, that we kind of all know. Today, people talk about human rights, civil rights, women's rights, minority rights, gay rights, disability rights, animal rights, unquote. And he begins to ask, where did all of that come from? And even the ability or that people are talking about rights, they don't realize that that came initially from the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to debate the validity of any of these causes or movements, but Yancey says that the success of these modern movements reflects a widespread empathy for the oppressed. Now, where did they get that? It shows that people are rightly concerned for the plight of oppression. And the assumption is that oppressed people need a champion. They need someone to speak for their condition. One presidential candidate says or talks about being a champion for working people and being a champion for income equality and being a champion for this. And oppressed people in particular who can't speak for themselves, of course, they need somebody else to speak for them. And most of us as Americans would say, well, that's a basic American assumption. We need to speak for the oppressed, thinking that it's American. Well, it is American in some regard, but being concerned for the plight and the oppressed is a uniquely Christian assumption. The assumption has no precedent in the ancient world. And Yancey points out, quote, 
In the ancient world, no one thought it was a virtue to come to the age of the oppressed. Classical and ancient philosophers considered mercy and pity to be character defects, <laughs> unquote. Mercy and pity were character defects that were contrary to justice, as the philosophers put it. Justice meant that if you did not get what you deserved, there was no justice. And if he did not get what he deserved for what he did, then there's still no justice for you. Whether good or bad, whatever the thing is, there's no justice. And that attitude did not change until Jesus came and said things like, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy is what? Biblically, we know mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Those are solely biblical Christian concepts brought to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I think of mercy from the biblical concept and from the Christian concept, I think of Shakespeare. I don't quote Shakespeare very often. Maybe my daughter would more often as an English major. She's going, I don't know. <laughs> but he wrote the, the Merchant of Venice. And in that, the, the, the speech given by Portia displays the Christian concept of mercy. Portia says this, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the earth beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch, better than his crown. Shakespeare says it is the most becoming thing a king can wear, not his crown, but that is to be merciful. Merciful. And that wasn't true in the ancient world. That wasn't true before Jesus came into this world. In the ancient world, being merciful wasn't a virtue. Being merciful meant you were weak. You showed weakness. Being compassionate wasn't a virtue. It just meant that you were too sloppy in your sentimentality. Being compassionate meant that there was something wrong with you because you were compassionate. And the strong were for the strong, and the weak ones were to be weeded out. It wasn't until Jesus came that attitude changed in the ancient world, and Christianity is what brought about that change. Sometimes as Americans, sometimes as Christians, we assume that everybody values everybody. And we hear that talked about on TV, you know, and those kind of things, but not everybody does value everybody. And if you do value others, if you see others as having worth, if you see others having intrinsic value, if you see others as having dignity as brought to them by God, whether you are taught by your parents or taught by the church or taught by somebody else, it's a uniquely Christian idea and somebody taught that to you. And here's the thing, and it's happening even as we sit here this morning, Satan is working hard at extracting the influence of the church from our nation. And when the influence of the church is diminished enough, when the influence of the church has been marginalized, pushed out to the fringes, maybe even pushed out together, and even criminalized as it's being done today, then the fuse on our nation has been lit. You extract the influence of the church from any society or nation, and you just wait, things are going to blow. The local church, such as Grace Baptist Church, 
is the only institution, the only organization that keeps front and center that every person matters and that every person has inherent worth and dignity, that every person is loved by God. In the history of our country, in the history of our country, the church has shaped and continues to shape our national conscience. It was Christianity through the influence of local churches that made America great. And in our country, if it is to be great again, it will be Christianity, or at least the influence of Christianity, that makes it great. In stating that, I remembered something that Andy Stanley had also added that, uh, you know, who's going to make America great? And he names three things that can't make America great. And these, these may surprise you a little bit. So I've, I've kind of borrowed them from him again at this point, and I'm going to expand on them quite a bit. You know, what, what can make our country great? We've already talked about politicians can't do it. The government can't do it. And, but why can't the government do it? It's because it's not in the nature of government. Government has been ordained by God for what purpose? But simply, according to the Apostle Paul, as we read it this morning from Romans, to bear the sword and for the punishment of evildoers. Romans 13.4 says that the governing authority is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, the government cannot make anyone or itself great because it's not in its intrinsic God-given nature. We love our country. We ask God to bless it. In a little bit, we'll be looking at how we can specifically influence our country. We submit to our government in obedience to Christ, but what the government can do is limited. The only thing the government can do, and this is in the nature of government, the government can only prescribe how low you can go before you get fined, before you go to jail, before you get punished, right? That's all they can do. The government sets the bottom bar. This is how low you can go before you start losing rights. This is how low you go before you have to pay a fine. This is how low you go and how many times you can go that low before you end up in prison. And so the government cannot and does not inspire anybody to greatness because they're setting the bottom bar. It can't even inspire itself to greatness. That's not even the role of governments, not the role of politicians. Neither can any candidate make the, you know, and we've seen how the person who says, I'm going to make America great again, what have we seen the last weekend? The low bar, the low bar, the low bar. The politicians and the government can't make America great again. They don't have the ability to make America great. And as long as we're on the subject, Andy Stanley says, neither can the media inspire us to greatness. And he says, that's okay, it's not supposed to. The media is built on what? Bad news. Good news is boring. Andy Stanley says he was a journalism major in college, and he said the first thing he was taught, nobody cares about good news. Good news is boring. Now, as I see it, we have 24-hour news channels that have to be controversial. They have to make every news bad news for 24 hours a day, 60 minutes in every hour, because if it's not negative, it's not controversial, nobody's going to watch it. And we have to have talk shows and radio shows that have nothing to say unless it's a disagreement with somebody else. Everybody wants to watch a debate, and do they want to watch everybody get along? 
Oh, you just go ahead and talk. You can have my two minutes because I'm really interested in what you have to say. One of the best lines of the debates this year was that of Dr. Ben Carson. Since the rules of debate, and I don't know where this came from, because I've watched every debate since the, the Kennedy-Nixon uh, debate years ago. I, I've never missed a regular presidential uh, debate. And, and I don't know where this rule came from. That if you're attacked, you get to respond to your attacker. And when Dr. Carson was being ignored and the attackees were going at the attackers and going back and forth and Dr. Carson was being ignored, he finally spoke up, will somebody please attack me? <laughs> That's the only way I'm going to be able to say anything. It has to be controversial. So the ratings goes up. It's nobody's fault. That's just the way it is. The government doesn't inspire us to greatness. The media doesn't inspire us to greatness. Schools used to inspire us to greatness. They did when I was a kid, but now what has happened with the schools, where schools have become so-called value-free zones, we can't have any specific values that are uplifted or, or to shoot at, because if we do, we might hurt somebody's feelings, or we might make people feel uncomfortable, or we might offend their parents. And so schools can inspire us to greatness. So here's the question. Who is it that inspires us to greatness? Who is it that inspires us to even go above the letter of the law? Where do we go to be inspired? Who sets the bar of human dignity and worth and how to treat others at such a high level that it inspires us to go to that level and beyond that level? to surpass the letter of the law. Where do we go to love our neighbors as ourselves? Now, there's a novel idea. Where do we go? We go to the godly church in the community. We go to the godly church in the community. So the first thing we need to understand when we talk about Christians, government, and politics is that whatever greatness America has had or might still have is solely traceable to the church. We hear a lot about Judeo-Christian values as the foundation of our country, and that's okay. I think we need to keep talking about that. But we would have no Judeo-Christian values in our country at all if it weren't for the church, if it wasn't for the local church. And I don't mean the church universal. I mean the local church, like Grace Baptist Church, where people are taught the Word of God, where they understand and begin to understand the love of God in their own lives. They are taught to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we are taught that everybody has value and that Christ wants to save them and fellowship with them for all eternity. You see, values mean nothing if there are not people who are living and exemplifying and teaching those values. People who are living godly lives and teaching their kids to live godly lives. And that cannot be done apart from the local church. It simply can't be done. So with all that as the basis, how should or how do Christians engage in government and politics today? So putting all that as our basis and stuff, I want to give us several thoughts about how we engage in government and politics and in all levels of society, how can we be a godly influence in, in our community? And you go, mm, I thought we were talking about America's greatness. We were. 
But America's greatness did not come about because Christians or the church tried to make it great. America's greatness was due to the fact that godly men and women engaged themselves in every level of society with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to move from the impact and influence of the church on our nation to the impact and the influence of godly people in their community, in their homes, and in their nation. You know, it's been rightly said that politics is a dirty business. And it's been proven so over and over again in our nation. There's a lot of talk of this political system, so our season, about how ugly it's gotten, and there's no precedent for us for it. And I go, well, okay. The first presidential candidate who secretly hired political hacks to discredit his opponent in the media, in the papers and pamphlets and other things that would be handed out, the first one to hire political hacks was Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson was running against his best friend, who was President John Adams. And Jefferson won the election, and when Adams found out that it was Jefferson that had discredited him in the, menace, in, the, in the media, their friendship ended for a period of time, until after Abigail Adams died, and John Adams knew that Abigail would want them to reconcile. And they did. And their letters back and forth are one of the great treasures and heritage uh, of our nation. Abraham Lincoln was portrayed in political cartoons as an ape, the missing link. There were senators who referred to him as Africanus Americanus, a very strong derision. On May 22, 1856, in the United States Congress, Representative Preston Brooks attacked Senator Charles Sumner with a walking cane in retaliation for a speech given by Sumner two days earlier. The beating nearly killed Sumner, and it drew a sharp, polarized response from the American public on the subject of the expansion of slavery in the United States. It has been considered symbolic of the breakdown of reasoned discourse that eventually led to the Civil War. Are we having a breakdown of civil discourse these days? That ought to tell something. Politics is a, bitty di a dirty business. And as we think about these things, I don't want to change anybody's mind or, or violate your conscience when it comes to what your participation is going to be, whether it's just voting or not voting, or, or if you're going to be involved in politics or in activism in some way. I, I wouldn't want you to violate anything that your conscience would say on these matters, and you'll see why in a little bit. I know good Christian people and their strong, good Christian traditions especially in the Anabaptist traditions who believe that Christians should stay out of government and politics completely. That, that they, they believe it's all evil, stay out of it. Nor do I want to overlook our first priority as Christians when it comes to those in authority over us. What is our first priority? What, are, what is the first thing? Remember when we read first things first out of 2 Timothy last week? First things first. What is, what is the first thing we're supposed to do in these matters? Second Timothy, or First Timothy chapter 2, first of all then, first thing, I urge you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I believe that America's true hope, I believe that our only hope is for God to visit his church 
with revival and to visit our country with awakening. I know as we were going up to Y2K in the year 2000 and all those kind of things, there were some of us as pastors and church leaders, we were praying like crazy for revival because we recognized historically that in the four centuries of our national history, in the four centuries, God visited revival in all three centuries except one, the 20th century. We went almost a hundred years without God visiting the church with revival and the country with awakening. What does awakening look like? Thousands and thousands come to Christ in repentance and salvation. Awakening looks like when the prison doors are closed because there's no one there to imprison. Awakening looks like when they close the banks on Wall Street for two hours at lunchtime so people can spend the time in prayer. Can you imagine? It actually happened in our country in the awakenings. We must keep in mind that awakening, that revival comes through the preaching of the word of God and through the prayers of God's people. We sang about that this morning. This has to be first. This has to be the first thing. But what else can we do? We need to know what else we can do. And that brings us back to the Puritan view of church and state that greatly influenced the establishment of our American public. The Puritans believed that godly families are made up of godly individuals. That it begins with personal godliness. It begins with a person's own personal relationship with Jesus Christ and their godly lives. And when you have godly individuals making up the family, then you have a godly family. The family is godly. And then they believed that godly churches were made up of godly families. That when you have families that are godly, then the church is going to be godly. And then they believe that if you're going to have a godly community, it's what? It's made up of godly churches. It is the churches that make a community godly. The basis for a godly community is the godly churches that form the community. And the Puritan goal was that godly men and women would influence have a godly influence at every level of society then. The godly men and women would have an influence in the family, in the church, and in the community, and in the nation. And in this regard, there is one particular aspect that begins to hit on the influence of a godly Christian or godly Christians in the community and in the nation. The Puritans taught, rightfully, and raised their children to be godly men and women. For example, that their sons, for example, would be godly men. That they would grow up to be godly husbands and godly fathers. And that then they would be godly churchmen and leaders in the church. And that they would be godly statesmen and leaders in the community. That the godliness of the church and of the family and of the individual would affect the community, and the nation. That was the basis for Governor Winthrop's shining city on the hill. Governor Winthrop founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and uh, Ronald Reagan was very fond of quoting the city on a hill. It came from Winthrop's book, A Model of Christian Charity, that New England would be an example of communal charity, affection, and unity to the whole 
world. The Puritan view was that we would be a nation that is founded in a way that we would raise our kids to live a godly life and make a difference for the kingdom of God in their homes, in their churches, in their communities, in their nation, and in the world. So I want to make two observations about this, about the Puritan view and how it has affected government and politics. And in this, you might see what your level of personal involvement is to be. And I'm going to point to two specific examples of godly statesmen in a government. Both have to do with the abolition of slavery. Maybe the hardest thing that uh, any nation has had to, dealt with, had to deal with when it comes to dignity and human rights and being created in the, the, the image of God. And I've chosen these examples because from a human perspective, the abolition of slavery was an impossible task. It had never been accomplished in the history of the world. In other words, you know, how are we going to give worth to people? And I've chosen two champions for the oppressed, recognizing that these two champions as examples didn't do it on their own. They had the prayers and political support of Christians and the church, sometimes where they had no or very little political support. And sometimes they had no government support. In both the United States and in England, it took godly churchmen and it took godly churches and godly statesmen to bring about the abolition of slavery. It even took the work of Christians who wouldn't work in the government and didn't want to have anything to do with the government or politics, who were conscientious objectors, yet they were instrumental as godly people in the abolition of slavery. The abolition of slavery in both Britain and America was a Christian movement. It was a movement of the church of God and the churches. Now I'm going to start at the top and work down on both of these examples and say more about the one from England than from the United States. But when you talk about the abolition of slavery in England in the early 19th century, you talk about a member of parliament by the name of William Wilberforce. The movie Amazing Grace has been going around. Uh, when it comes to books, I had a professor that you would say, that, that's an RBD. What's an RBD? It means read before death. <laughs> That's how important it is. Amazing Grace, the movie, is a WBD. <laughs> Watch before death. You, you need to see that. William Wilberforce's story has been made famous in that movie, Amazing Grace. And Wilberforce, although he was in poor health his entire life, he labored for decades for the abolition of slavery and what he called the reformation of society in England. Often his struggle completely broke his health. He was a frail, bent-over man at times whom his opponents called a shrimp. But when he spoke in Parliament, they said, the shrimp became a whale. Year after year, Wilberforce introduced a bill in Parliament for the abolition of the slave trade, and year after year it failed. One year, his opponents offered free tickets to a comic opera, so the bill's supporters were absent during the vote. Now, at one point in his early political career, Wilberforce started to rise early, get up early in the morning, to read his Bible and prayer. He began to keep a prayer journal, a private journal, and he underwent an evangelical conversion. Those were his words. He regretted his past life, and he resolved to commit his future life and work to the service of God. He contemplating leaving public life 
as he called it, leaving Parliament. Maybe God, if do the work of God, maybe he wants to me to do this over here. And he sought the counsel of his childhood pastor, a pastor by the name of John Newton. Does that sound familiar? John Newton, of course, was the ex-slave trader turned pastor who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if you ever watch the movie, there's that marvelous scene in the movie where John Newton has, is totally blind now, and he's writing his memoirs and getting ready to put them down on paper. And uh, he says, all I remember is I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That was John Newton. And John Newton urged Wilberforce to stay in Parliament and work for the abolition of the slave trade because this too was what? The work of God. You know, going back, you know, in... In, in 1788, 34 years after Newton had retired from the slave trade, he broke his long silence on the subject with the publication of a forceful pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. And he described the horrific conditions of the slave ships during the Middle Passages. And he apologized for waiting so long. And he said, a confession which comes too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders, unquote. And Newton had copies of his pamphlets sent to every member of parliament, and the pamphlets sold so well that it swiftly required reprinting. So that was the work of John Newton in all of this. And along with John Newton, Wilberforce had the support and work of what was called the Chapin Sect, it's named after a town of Chapton in England. And the Chapton sect were a group of Christians who had experienced the evangelical revival in England. God had revived their hearts. He had worked in their lives. He had worked in their, their communities. So out of this revival came these group of people who became activists in the abolition of slavery. And the Chapton sect is described as a, a network of friends and families in England with Wilbur, William Wilberforce as its center of gravity who were powerfully bound together by their shared moral and spiritual values, by their religious mission and social activism, and by their love for one another. In other words, it's just a group of people, ordinary people, townspeople, who God had worked in their hearts through revival and awakening, whom they saw supporting one another and working for this cause that God would have them work. In fact, it was the Chapton sect that first encouraged William Wilberforce to do what he could do as a member of parliament to abolish slavery. They continued to meet time and time again and gathered more and more support from other members of parliament. And... Uh, just say this in passing, one of the most colorful members of the Chapton sect was Thomas Clarkston. And if you've seen the movie, Thomas Clarkston is this colorful character. And they show him as a little bit uh, tipsy when it comes to the, the liquor and those kind of things. But he was in real life a man who worked tirelessly. He's the one that documented the horrors of slavery. He's the one that got the documentation. He was the one that worked hard at the 300 and some thousand signatures on a a petition, that was Thomas Clarkson. All of this to say that the abolition of slavery in, in England was a Christian concern through and through. And it took the tireless work 
and prayers of Christians at every level of society, in the home, in the church, in the community, and in the nation. And even though the abolition came slowly from the evangelical revival in England, I've often said that what revival brought and what God brought about in, in England through the tireless work of God's people over many years, it took a civil war to do in the United States. It took a civil war. But even so, like England, the abolition of slavery in the United States was a Christian concern at every level. Non-Christians got involved, but history shows that it was Christians in the church that drove the movement. We're much more familiar with our American history, so I just want to name some of the high points and, and maybe talk about a couple of things that maybe you didn't know before. We know that Abraham Lincoln was a godly man whom God used in, in marvelous ways. He, he quoted scripture in his speeches. He, he, he was a man of prayer. He wasn't a perfect man. No man is, but that makes God's work in grace even, even more marvelous. But it's been said that Abraham Lincoln was the last president of the United States that truly understood the Puritan ideal that was instilled in the, follow, the founding of our nation. And what was that main Puritan ideal that the Puritans brought to our nation when they founded, when they signed the Mayflower Compact in, in Plymouth and when they did other things? It is this. Our Puritan forefathers believed that they were in covenant with God and in covenant with one another. Lincoln was one, the last president, I, who, I believe, who really understood this. Therefore, the dissolution of the union was to break covenant with God and one another. That we weren't living up to our side of our agreement with God. God, we will be your people. You will bless our nation. But if we cease being your people and or we do this, then what, God? And Abraham Lincoln and other Christian leaders at the time therefore saw the Civil War as God's judgment upon the nation because our nation had broken their covenant with God, not just with slavery, but with all kinds of other stuff. And they prayed, you know, that not so much that God would be on their side, but they prayed that they would be on God's side. And so we see godly men like Robert E. Lee and General Stonewall Jackson who prayed every day, Lord, let us be on your side in this matter. We see Abraham Lincoln praying the same thing. But like England, there was Christian and church involvement at every level in the abolition of slavery. In fact, the Quakers were pacifists. They would not involve themselves directly in government or in politics. But what? They were instrumental in the Underground Railroad in, in doing those kinds. In fact, if you go clear back to the late 17th century, around 1680, 1688, somewhere around there, the first Americans who made a public protest against slavery were the Mennonites in Germantown, Pennsylvania. The abolition of slavery movement for a hundred years almost began in a local church in Germantown, Pennsylvania. And soon after, the Quakers in the same town wrote a two-page documentation, 
or condemnation of the practice. They sent it to their governing bodies of the, the Quaker churches called the Society of Friends. The roots of abolition of slavery in the United States is traced directly to the local church. What can a local church do in Germantown, Pennsylvania? You may not even heard of Germantown, Pennsylvania until I mentioned it just now. What can a local church do in Emmett, Idaho? What can Grace Baptist Church do? And we see with the abolition of slavery that Christians were directly involved at every level. In both England and the United States, if not for the involvement of Christians in the churches at every level of society and government, slavery would not have been abolished. Now, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we need to be reminded that it's not our goal to make America great or any nation great. But it is our responsibility before God to be salt and light in our community and in our world. And in the case of America and Britain, we have examples of how the kingdom of God through his church and by his Holy Spirit makes a difference in the world that has made the whole world different. You know, as we look now and we see the, the massive dysfunction that's going on in politics and government at, at every level, you know, there's probably not a one of us that say, wow, what, what, what can we do? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? What, what would God have us to do? Is there anything God would have us to do as Grace Baptist Church? And what about all that separation of church and state thing? I haven't said anything this morning that's ever violated what separation of church and state mean. What it, what it truly means. Now, I don't have a multiple choice questionnaire here where you can say, okay, I can, I can do this, that, or, or maybe this over here. Some of us are inclined to be pacifists. Some of us are inclined as Christians to be activists. Some of us is some of this and some of us is none of this. We're, we're all different, but it takes all of this, <laughs> all of us at this level. But this I do know, we are a holy nation, we are a chosen people, we are a royal priesthood, and we are strangers and aliens in this world. But God has called us to be salt and light in this world. And I ask that God, through his word, through his Holy Spirit, would lead each one of us to what our level of involvement and participation is to be in these matters. That as we begin to permeate our culture and our government and our politics at every level, and some will say, I'm not going there. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not asking you to go there. Because we have seen that it takes the influence of godly people in the home, in the churches, in the community, and in our nation, and how God uses that in ways that we couldn't even imagine, but where God gave the strength, the endurance, and the encouragement, sometimes for people to stay at it for a generation, to stay at it for years. I'm not saying that there's easy answer, easy quick, because that one is, God, visit revival and do it now. <laughs> Yeah, because we've seen historically what that has done. But what has happened? Because culture and society is like this. God does a great work. People come to Christ. 
and they're living for Christ and they're loving one another and then it starts to settle down another generation comes up and uh, it's been rightly said that uh, at any given time Christianity is only or is in danger of being one generation away from extinction in any country at any time. When I grew up uh, what was going on in Burma was considered an American missionary success movement. There were whole tribes and groups of people that came to Jesus Christ, the Karen people, for example, in the South and others, and those kind of things. And we'd have missionaries who'd come to Burma and tell us these stories, and we would rejoice, and we would send our money, and it was a great success in the modern missionary movement. What is Burma now? What is Myanmar now? You go, what happened to Christianity? Because within one generation, those Christians that are still there had to move underground. They had to, and they've been murdered and massacred like they've been in so many places. And so we go, what, what on earth can we do? We can be godly people in our homes, teach our kids to be godly kids, teach them that God's going to use you to make a difference in the home, in the church, and in the nation and in the world, what an incredible thing to teach our kids. And if they're going to learn that, where are they going to learn it? They're going to learn it here at Grace Baptist Church and other godly churches in our community and in our world. Shall we pray? Father, we do pray for the healing of our nation. We, we, we look what's going on in the news and in politics today and we go... At least I do. What country is this? this? This isn't the country I grew up in. And of course it's, it's not. Lord, and I know that there are those who have labored for years to turn the tide on these things and have worked tirelessly to get the right bills passed in Congress that would protect the dignity and the rights and the, and the worth of human souls. Lord, and I know a lot of people are discouraged. I know a lot of people are, are ready to throw in the towel in these things. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin right here, right now, and in other churches in our community, and in other churches in our state, and in our region, and in our world. Father, as we look at what's going on, in our government and politics today, I think of that song that says, let the church be the church. Help us to be the church that you want us to be. And then we will trust you for the marvelous and miraculous results that you will bring about through us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.